0: continually invites us to be with you. And I pray, Lord, uh, today as we learn more about that invitation, as we're reminded of the invitation that you give, I pray, Lord, that we would see the beauty that it brings, the promises that come with it, and, and may we see more of who we are in light of that beautiful invitation. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there have been many things that I have learned in the, uh, about myself in the 11 years that I've been married to my wife. Uh, I think naturally when you have somebody in your life for an extended period of time and as intimate and as close as that is, they reveal some things about you in the process. And one of the things that Gretchen has pointed out to me personally is she says, Dave, you are an incredibly competitive person. This is something that I am working on, but she says that you turn everything into a competition. It's just natural that this is how you do it. And and just to prove the point, uh, if you've been in church in the last six months, you've probably heard about my obsession with this stupid game called bocce ball, right? It's a lawn game oversized marbles that you are rolling to a smaller ball, all right? It is such a silly little game. But I will say that my competitive spirit has made me uh, some friends at bocce ball. It has also made some people that I need to love because Jesus tells me to love, all right? Which is another way of saying that some people that I don't really like, okay? Because of that competitive spirit, I've been known to uh, challenge people to eat something in a number of bites. I have been known to be taking advantage of my competitive spirit to do something really dumb that I regret later on in the day. Anybody with me here, all right? My competitive spirit leads me to the place of that when my wife and I are in uh, our two vehicles, when she's in the van and I'm in the blue car, if we're going to the same destination, you know what the first thing that I say to her when we get out? I beat you, right? <laughs> I see this all the time. She points this out to me. She's like, why has it got to be so competitive? And, and I recognize uh, that the, this comes out in silly little things all the time for me. But I also recognize that it comes out in really important things for me as well. Like I could tell you right away the most amount of people that we've ever had at church on a Sunday morning. I could also right away tell you the least amount of church that we've had on a Sunday morning as well. This competitive nature comes out in me all the time, in things that matter and in things that don't matter. And for some reason in my life, I have this thought that if there isn't a winner and a loser, then it really doesn't have a whole lot of value. And I remember playing this like silly game of shuffleboard one time with my wife and turned it into this competitive game and said, you know, hey, we're going to play for something or something to this effect. And she just said to me, Dave, can we just enjoy the moment? The reason she was saying that was because she was losing, all right? (laughs) Because what I've realized of my wife is that she too is equally just as competitive, all right, everything too. She doesn't want to admit it, but it's a way for her to deal with the competitive nature that is just boiling over in her. Does anybody with me here? You know this. Maybe this is your tactic, right? Because I don't think that this competitive nature is something that is just a McGinley household problem. I think this exists all over the place inside of our society. And, Just to prove the point, I think that inside of our American culture, we are hyper-competitive people. Maybe for you, it's in your job, and you realize that you are called to outperform the person that maybe is literally sitting right next to you. I just got to be a little bit better than the person that's next to me. Or maybe it's in the classroom, where it's like, you know, well, I've got to just do a little bit more than the person next to me, or study a little bit harder in the process. Maybe it doesn't have to do with your job. Maybe it's just the fact that inside of our society and culture, we begin to amplify somebody's voice because they have more likes to it. That because of Instagram and Facebook and all the, the approval of society, now their voice has more influence. It's a shadow of the competitive nature that exists as we all desire to just reach a couple more likes or maybe I'll get to 100 on this one. Or or maybe it's the fact that we inside of our culture and society seem to base our value and worth in comparison to other people. Thinking that, well, as long as I'm just a little bit better than the person next to me, man, at least I'm not as bad as that person or at least I'm doing in my field a little bit better than the other person around me. The danger becomes that we live in a world that seeks to outperform, to outachieve, to outsmart, to outdo the people next to us. It's just part of who we are. And, And I must say that I think that this flows into our faith and the walk that we have with Jesus. If you were with us last week, we kicked off this like 40-day challenge of the red letter challenge here. And, And in that, we are talking about these disciplines, these principles of what it looks like to look, live, and love more like Jesus. But when you see red letter challenge, you automatically might think, well, this has got to be a competition. I mean, challenge is in the word. Like, like I'm going to outbeat the other people around me, and I'm going to outdo everybody else around me. And, and when we bring this kind of process, this kind of thought, into what the red letter challenge really is, I think we miss out on the first and most important part of this challenge, which is why this week is so important. We're talking about this concept of being. See, before Jesus invites you to do anything, he invites you into a relationship, one where he wants you to know who you are. There's really uh, two types of religions that exist in, in the world. If I were to boil it down, the first type of religion says this, that what you do leads to who you are. Essentially meaning that uh, life is like this cosmic scale, and if there's good and bad, as long as I do a little bit more good and it outweighs the bad, then therefore the result is that I am good. And if it's the opposite, then, then I am bad. And the thought is that I need to outperform, I need to outdo, I need to please this God or the gods by the actions that I do and all kinds of things because what I do reveals who I am. But there's another kind or type of religion that, that I think is really important for us to lean into, which says this, who you are leads to what you do. Recognizing who you are first then leads ultimately the direction in which you go. I I saw somebody post this on social media this week. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, This thought that religion says that I messed up, my dad is going to kill me. It's the thought that if I do bad, if I do wrong, then this means I'm bad and that this, my father, he's gonna come after me. But really the gospel or what Jesus says is simply this, that I messed up and I need to call my dad. For whatever reason, I think in Christianity, we've made it into this thing that we need to do. Before Jesus invites you to go and do anything, he wants to invite you into a relationship to know who you are before he calls you to go and do. And that's incredibly beautiful because we all recognize that in our competitive nature, We're going to fail. We're not going to live up to the standards that other people put on us. And that's why I wanna spend some time in Matthew chapter 11 here, uh, beginning in verse 25. I find this passage so incredibly beautiful and it's important to understand the context and what Matthew is writing about. He's talking about this relationship that we have with God before he calls us to go and do it's interesting because um, the context that is happening here is that Jesus is in the process of his teaching ministry. And his ministry has begun, um, and he is sending out people to go and share the good news that the kingdom of God is here. In fact, we read just a few chapters before uh, Jesus calling Matthew and some other disciples and then sending them out to go and proclaim that message that the kingdom of God is here. And then we get to Matthew chapter 11, and what happens is really perplexing. I think that this is really actually beautiful, but perplexing. Because the people start coming back, and they say that, hey, Jesus, it's not working. People aren't listening. Actually, it's It's failing. And if you read right before Matthew 11, where we're at, 25, right before that, Jesus goes into this statement where he says, woe to these three cities. He says, woe to you, Chorazan, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, these areas, this region up here in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Chorazan is a place where we don't know actually what Jesus did there. We don't have any record of anything that happened. We just read in Matthew 11 that Jesus says, woe to that place, all right? By the way, woe is not a good thing, all right? He's not like, whoa, you guys are awesome. Whoa, it's not going so well, all right? He he gets into the second place. He says, in Bethsaida is the place where Peter, Andrew, and John are from. There's a healing that happens there, but Jesus says, woe to this place too. You went and announced the good news, and it's not producing the results that we want. And Capernaum actually is a popular place during the teaching and time of Jesus, a place where we read of many healings and miracles and all kinds of things that were happening. But Jesus says, woe to this place. And it's fascinating because the people come and they say, why is this not working? It seems like we're failing. It seems like things aren't going as planned. And and for whatever reason, inside of religion, inside of faith, we have equated that if something is done by the hand of God, it produces good results. You know what I'm saying? We've bought into this lie thinking that if I'm doing God's will, if I'm doing things perfectly, then that means that it's going to be of perfect benefit and blessing for me. But that's not always the case of how it works. And I can point to you to Matthew chapter 11 because Jesus says this isn't going how necessarily the people wanted it to go. And I just believe that maybe somebody here needs to hear this today. I just believe for whatever reason that, that somebody here has been trying their hardest just to, to do and outperform and outachieve and have put your value and worth against against other people around you and thinking that the only way out of this situation is I got to pick myself up by my bootstraps and do a little bit more and process a little bit more. If that's you today, because I know I'm preaching at myself today, then I want you to know that I need you to hear the invitation that Jesus gives because this is absolutely radical to who he is. And to how the world operates and performs. See, in the midst of this time, Jesus has his disciples here in Matthew chapter 11. And and he invites them to this beautiful relationship. And it's one that he doesn't say, now we need to go back to Chorazan. We need to go back to Bethsaida and back to Capernaum. And if you would have done X, Y, Z, then A, B, C would have happened and all of these things. Instead, Jesus changes the conversation to a relationship that he has with his disciples. He talks about the relationship that he has with them. In the midst of failure, Jesus reminds them of the relationship. And he says this, in Matthew 25 through 27, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And Maybe right now you're thinking, I was looking for something a little bit different, <laughs> seems a little bit confusing, all right? What are you talking about here, Jesus? I I want you to understand where, where Jesus begins as he's talking about this relationship. He begins in this fact of how God is working through him and he uses this image of a family. He says, I need you to be reminded that I need you to trust me in this. Little children, the child who listens to the parent and the things that they have to say, God is still at work in this. I want you to trust me in the midst of the struggle, in the midst when things aren't going as you perceive it to go. And then he says this statement, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. In the midst of, of when things aren't going as expected. In the midst when you would expect. Because if I was Jesus in this situation, you know what it would be? Let's go do some more things. we got to be more innovative. we got to try a bunch of new things. we got to go a whole new direction. Let's, maybe it's the vision of the church. We need to go a new vision, a new way. No, he says, come to me. All of you who are heavy laden and burdened. And I'll give you rest. He invites us in to know who he is. Notice that the word all is there. It's an invitation to all people, not just to some. An invitation that Jesus desires for all people to know, regardless of where you've been, what you've done, and what will happen. It's for all. But then he says this word, rest. And it's perplexing. Because one might think, all right, well, is like Jesus going to give him like a week-long vacation? All right, some time off here? All right, just go away to a remote location and just kind of sleep it off, and then we'll kind of get back to work. No, this isn't a break. Instead, this kind of rest is different. Uh, The word that in the original language uh, of Greek that the Bible was written in that Matthew uses here is this word, anapao. Say it with me. One, two, three. I was just seeing if you could say it, all right? So uh, anapao, the word there means rest. Wow, brilliant. All right, moving forward. All right, no, the word means rest, but it doesn't mean in the sense of a vacation or to like go away for a period of time there's a deeper meaning of what Matthew is saying here in this text. what, What the word actually means is it's pointing to a future completion of God's saving work. It says, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you a saving work, a completion that is done, by what Jesus will do. This is absolutely perplexing to the first hearers, but incredibly beautiful for us to understand. Looking back at it now, we know that this moment is Jesus pointing to the cross, pointing to his death and resurrection. We know that his death and resurrection is the thing that has been done on our behalf. And it restores, it renews, it builds a relationship with our Heavenly Father who has created everything. And it changes all things for us. And it removes this dynamic of thinking that in our relationship with God, that all of a sudden we are in this competitive race against other people. God's the already the one who has achieved the tasks that needed to be completed. In the midst of failure, God invites you into a relationship to remind you who you are and ultimately who he is. And we get to Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 through 30. Jesus continues. He says these famous words, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just by show of hands, who's heard this text before? It's kind of a famous passage. All right, most of you, yeah. Now, um, if you've heard it before and you've thought that Jesus was talking about eggs, you are mistaken, all right? He wasn't talking about the the yellow thing in an egg, all right? He was talking about one of two things. And I've put a ton of time into studying this. We're not totally sure, but it's one of two things. It's either this. He's talking about an animal yoke, this thing that would be used by farmers that they would place on animals. And so what he's saying here is that you are now yoked with me, Jesus's head on one side. I didn't Photoshop it in there and your head on the other. All right. That you are going in this direction and the work that you are doing is now different. You're not on your own on this. That's what some scholars say that Jesus was referring to. Other scholars have said that no, he wasn't. He wasn't talking like saying that hey, you're like a, an animal. But he's saying that the yoke that is given to you is more like this. What this kid is is wearing right here, something that you would put over your shoulders. That you know, this is before the invention of cars and all sorts of stuff like that. That this instrument, a yoke, was was given to people to carry a burden that they could not carry with their own hands. It doesn't matter either way, whatever image you like, Jesus is saying the simple truth that, that what I am giving you is easier than anything else that exists in this world. The burden and the pain and the struggle, the competition that comes in this place. What I am offering you is lighter than anything else that does exist. And I want you to take it upon yourself. I love it. He continues here. He says this, this statement, that I want you to learn from me. See, in the midst of the failure, the struggle, the competition that was going on, Jesus doesn't tell him to go and do a bunch of things. He invites them to come in. I say, take again this yoke upon you, and learn from me. Learn and hear who I am, and in the process, you will hear who you are. I heard uh, this image and did a little research on uh, on this person. Uh, her name is Mary. Whipple. And uh, Mary was a part of the US8 women's rowing team. Uh, And uh, Mary got a little bit of publicity a couple years ago because in 2008 and 2012, the US8 women's rowing team just dominated the rowing circuit. Not sure if you caught that news or not. But um, but Mary uh, isn't a, a rower on the team. Uh, for the women U.S women's Eight. There are literally eight people in the boat, and Mary is the person that is on the front there. She's known as the Coxswain. Uh, that's her term, or the cox. And uh, the coxswain has a very specific job. And uh, in fact, they are called like the coach of the boat. Imagine that uh, we are going this way, and, uh, and you are called to row. And as you are rowing, that means that you, if we are going that way, you are facing the opposite direction in which you are going. The only person who sees the direction that you're supposed to go is the coxswain. And so Mary, being the ninth person on that boat, she's the only one that sees the future. She's the only one that's able to look forward. Her job is not only to coach you, she has the job and responsibility to direct and steer the place that the boat is supposed to go, and she also has the job and responsibility to keep the team on task. Uh, let's go the, at the proper pace, the right direction, and all kinds of things. And what's interesting is that uh, when they were just dominating, they won multiple gold medals. They won all these international tournaments. Any race they entered, they were, they were winning. They started to get some publicity. And the New York Times wrote an article on this team and said, what's your secret to success? How are you guys doing this? How, how is this happening? And the eight women who were the rowers all pointed to Mary. I said, well, Mary is the reason that, that we're so great. Uh, all right, well, tell us a little bit more. One, one person on the team had said that I had a coxswain one time, the person at the back of the boat steering, who fell asleep during a race. <laughs> like, not, not good for when you're trying to row, right? Uh, another uh, person said, well, I had a coxswain one time that uh, every every time that a boat would start to get close to us, all the coxswain would do would just scream and yell louder. And it became just incredibly annoying that I wanted to stop rowing as a process of just being yelled at and screamed at. So they said, all right, well, what what does Mary do that is different? This is interesting. Said Mary's perspective is unique. Because what she does is, before the race, she would gather her team, that US Women's Eight team, bring them into a room, typically a dark room, and before the race would ever begin, she would walk through the race as to how it was supposed to go. They would sit in a room, they would sit in their positions and spots, And they said that we would once again learn Mary's voice over and over. And she would describe how the race would happen. What was supposed to come next? Remember, the coxswain is the only person in the boat that could see the future. As they looked to her and listened to her voice, I think you are starting to see how this transfers over into our walk of faith. That in the midst of a task and struggle, in the midst of where we are, I think we have to come to grips with the fact that I'm not going to know the future. I feel like the older I get and I'm not that old. That was a good joke. The older I get, the more I begin to realize and see that I can't control the future of what's going to happen. Can anybody say amen to that? The more I, I begin to realize that if I can't control the future, then, then I'm looking to something else or somebody else. And maybe I'm looking at myself thinking that I've got to just do more and row harder and pull harder. And maybe I'm listening to a voice of somebody that's saying that the reason that you're failing, the reason that things aren't going well, the reason that you hate your life, the reason that you're emotionally unstable, the reason for all this stuff is because you're not doing enough. That is not the voice of God. That is not who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who is saying to you, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. I want you to know who you are. Just for the sake of the metaphor, and I believe he is the one who sees what is to come one that we can trust in this. And so this week in our red letter challenge is all about this principle of learning how to be. That in the midst of a 40-day challenge, we're gonna begin with learning how to be, which is another way to say you're gonna learn who you are. And the way that we learn who we are is using these things called spiritual disciplines. They're things that have been in the church for a long time. This week, over the next seven days, you're going to be challenged to like, read your Bible. You're gonna be challenged to find some time for prayer. You're gonna be challenged to rest in God. To go for a walk and just either don't listen to music or listen to some some worship music. By the way, if you go to Spotify, we've got Trinity Galewood playlist that you can listen to, all right? You're going to be challenged to take a Sabbath, to remove something from your life so that you can intentionally put something in. And you're going to be challenged just to celebrate. This is all part of learning who you are. Learning about that invitation from Jesus. Learning at the midst of struggle. God's inviting you in. Now, if you're skeptical, you might be saying, Pastor, you sound like a big hypocrite right now. Because you just told me that The first step in knowing Jesus means that you don't do anything. You just listed off like five or six things that now I got to do. Like reading my Bible, not going to admit it here in church, but it's not something that I really like doing. Or praying, are you kidding me? I don't even know what that looks like at times. I, I get it. I understand that this sounds kind of counterintuitive or against what I was saying before. But I want you to understand this, that the disciplines that Jesus gives us to learn who we are isn't a matter of earning God's love. It isn't a matter of learning how to outweigh the bad in our lives with good. It is a discipline that changes our intention And reminds us of the freedom, the yoke that God brings upon us. The rest, the anapa'u, the rest that Jesus is offering. Especially in the midst of burden and labor. I pray for the next week that our viewpoint and our challenge would lead us into learning more about who we are and not seeing it as another thing that has to be done to achieve God's love. It's already been taken care of by what he's done for you. Now let's rest and be in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who brings completion, who promises to bring rest. That seems strange in our competitive world where we are constantly weighing ourselves against other people, trying to outperform, outdo, always thinking that that's what brings the best result. Lord, I'm blown away by your grace. I'm blown away by how you seem to just do some things backwards at times. I pray, Lord, that that would be perplexing enough to us that we would lean into it and that we would just seek to know more of you so that we would learn more of ourselves and learn more about the promise that you bring, which is rest Rest right now and for eternity. It's in Jesus' name, amen.